Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we've got uh, some good parables here this evening to work on. Lord, we are individuals that uh, are ones who, for the most part, would claim uh, the fact of knowing your Son, and uh, our stories of coming to know him are completely different as far as how we came to the knowledge of Christ, but uh, we're thankful for a Savior who saves all that come to him in faith. And so as we look at these parables this evening, may we understand uh, that truth and uh, the parables, and uh, may we uh, rejoice uh, in what we have uh, in Christ and all the benefits uh, of knowing him uh, both now and for eternity. So we love you. We thank you for your son who makes these things possible. Amen. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This will be can't guarantee it'll be the last time we'll look at these, but uh, as far as in the regular schedule of parables, we are not uh, coming back to Matthew chapter 13. So we have seven parables in this uh, chapter. There are some that claim there's eight, and I'll give you why they think there's eight uh, as we get to the end of the lesson today. But these are all parables of the kingdom, describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. As we go further along, we will still run into parables that talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But uh, the parables will vary in their message. Some will talk about prayer or talk about uh, how Jesus will be received or, I mean, just a variety of different things. But this concentrated uh, section uh, has been good. It's some of uh, the more difficult sections to try and interpret as we went and looked at last week uh, are found in these parable sections, but it's been good for us to be here. But I want us to read through the section that uh, we have, verse 44 to verse 52. We have three parables in this section and a conclusion. Verse 44 starts this way, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net, that it was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, have ye understood all these things? They say say unto him, Yea, or yes, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. We have three parables here, and as your note uh, at the top of the page uh, lets us know, is that the first two parables are meant to be taken together. The parable of the treasure and the pearl are designed to just to read one and the other. They have the very similar messages, though there are important differences, but they're almost the same uh, as you read through them. The last one serves as a conclusion to remind people of the importance of welcoming the good news of the kingdom. 
The danger of not welcoming that uh, is uh, clearly seen uh, in the conclusion. So let's look at the first two parables first, the treasure and the pearl. And as you go through this story, the important factor, the important individual is not the treasure or the pearl, uh, it's the individuals. These two individuals, you have one man who is in a field, the other one who is a merchant uh, man. These two individuals uh, could be described uh, in two different ways. One of them is this way. One is not, as you have your notes there, is not looking, or we might put it this way, he's indifferent. You know what I mean by indifferent? Well, you'll understand this in a second. But he's, he's not looking, he's kind of indifferent to what's going on around him, but he finds something. The other is earnestly looking, or is, we put it this way, is interested Okay, there, there's an interest in these things uh, uh, before he even finds what's going on here. When it comes to treasures in the field, it's not an uncommon thing in the ancient world to find these things. Uh, about every six months, almost like clockwork, you have individuals, especially in England, uh, but you have in other places where guys are working with metal detectors and they come across in a field a bag of coins. And it's Roman coins, uh, or uh, sometimes you have, in some cases, uh, recently they had some that were found during the time of Richard III. They figured it out. Uh, it was near a battlefield where this had taken place, and some guy dug up a whole bunch of gold coins. Uh, not so much in the United States, you don't find this type of thing. I, I thought as a young man I had a metal detector, and so I went out to my backyard there in Lyle, you know, just a rampant place of history. Um, but I uh, went to my backyard and had my metal detector out and found a piece of, you know, something in my backyard and started digging it up, and it was gold. And uh, started pulling it up out of the ground, and it was this yellow brick with a circle in it. It was metal. The only thing I can figure out is that perhaps uh, the Caterpillar truck or whatever, or the, the, the vehicle that had been working on our property somehow lost this piece of metal because it was thick, it was heavy, but, you know, it was a gold bar, but it was a yellow gold bar and it really wasn't gold. But, uh, you know, I thought, you know, wow, you know, maybe I could find other things uh, as a kid. But anyhow, you can find these in the ancient world all over the place. And you do have people at times just suddenly finding, a, you know, coins out in the middle of, you'd say, nowhere. You say, why is that the case? Well, in a society, it's the best way to hide things when there were no banks. Okay, you didn't have banks. Banks are a 13th century invention or 12th century invention where you had uh, these things that you could put money in and then take money or a deposit slip someplace else and get money out of another bank. This is an invention rather modern. And so people would hide their money. Uh, if you were a rich person, you had somebody that you, you know, locked it away and they guarded it. But if you were a poor person, you typically didn't leave all your cash in your house because we were gone. Somebody walks in, you have two or three rooms, there's not many places to hide stuff. And that's just the way they furnished these houses back when. Uh, and um, so the best way to do it is to go out in the field and bury it. Um, you have modern examples of this. 
Um, about four years ago, I, I'm thinking, uh, you had some guys that were working on a house, and they were working on the eaves and the gutter, and they found this tin. And they opened it up, and they found all sorts of cash from the 1920s and the 1930s. Now, think about this in American history. Why would that be the case, that you would find money hidden in the eaves? 1930s, uh, you have the runs on the bank, and people lost all sorts of money. So what they did is they would hide it in their attics and different places like that. Now, the problem with hiding things like this is this thing at the end that you have in that paragraph. Hey, even today, treasure hunters find gold stash in normal fields. Many times the money was buried, and the owner died, and the money's co-location died with him. I mean, this is just the, the, the way it was. And so these people had knowledge of this, and they suddenly die in a war of a plague, famine, and they don't tell anybody where it's at. It's going to sit there in a plain old field for years and years and years until someone uh, finds it uh, however it means they uh, find it. Uh, I was talking, we had a man that was attending from where Scott's at uh, this, uh, this past week, and uh, he said, my great-grandfather owned lots of farmland, and uh, he actually uh, took his money and buried it between two trees. He said it was gone for a while. He said my uncle eventually found it in between where these two trees are at, where he had stashed all of his money. Uh, as his grandfather had died, and no one knew where he'd buried it. So even, you know, think about modern times. You have this. So you have that story. This man is in this field. We're not told why he's in the field, whether he's working there as a hired laborer or uh, he's walking through it and kicks a rock and suddenly hears this clinking of things and starts digging and okay, and he puts everything back. He goes and sells all that he has and goes out and buys the field. You go, does he have to tell people about this if he finds it on their property? Jewish law uh, stated that he didn't. They kind of had a law that could be simply this, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I mean, it, it, that was kind of a law that the Jews had. Uh, when it came even to pro things found on property that had been buried uh, in that culture. So you have that thing. You have a person who's just working or walking through, they find this by accident, and they go and sell everything for it. Uh, the other thing is this, is that uh, you have the story of the pearl. An excellent pearl in ancient culture was extremely hard to find. See, in our culture, we don't think much about this. We have multiple processes for getting pearls, okay? They figured out if you get a whole bunch of whatever, you know, clams, oysters, whatever, and shoot stuff into their mouth, that they get irritated by it and they make pearls. But in the normal environment, way back in ancient culture, they, they've got numbers that uh, you would go about one in every, and you have this as a blank, one in every 10,000 oysters, you'd find a pearl. Um, I was getting ready for this last week, uh, looking forward to this week, and there was an article that came up uh, from the United Arab Emirates. It's on the Persian Gulf. And they were getting ready to put in some luxury condominiums, and they were going through an area, an island kind of off the coast there that they were thinking about doing this. And they started digging, and they were finding all sorts of ancient you know, structures, whatever, in the ground, and they began to survey all this and realized by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of oyster shells they found there. 
that this was a place where they were looking for pearls. I mean, you, you get some meat off of this, but they're looking for pearls. And, and uh, the facilities that were there, they said, well, this is an ancient, uh, and by far, uh, they said in that region, the most ancient kind that they found, they think it's about 500 years after Christ. But you know this is going on even before this, and you read different records, that you had people that were finding pearls. Now, imagine this, one out of 10,000. When you get pearls, realize this, that they're not the beautiful white pearls that you imagine. Many of them are different colors. Sometimes they're misshapen for different reasons, uh, but in general, uh, they can come in multiple different colors, multiple different sizes, depending on uh, different factors. Uh, And you kind of go, well, if you're looking for that perfect pearl, it would be a rarity to be able to find this. Uh, You have this man who is a merchantman who is looking through this. And when he finds his pearl, we're not given a description of the pearl, but to him, he knows his, his stuff. And he goes, this is the most perfect pearl I have ever seen. So what I'm going to do is go out and sell everything else I have, get rid of the other stockpile of pearls I have, and get this one. Because there is no pearl to match the quality of this one. And so the man sells all that he has to go and get this one single pearl. Just to continue in our thinking, pearls are valuable. Today they don't seem to be because you can make them artificially and make them look like pearls and whatever. You can go through all of that. But think about what the heavenly city, that's you got the note there, the heavenly city gates are made of pearls. You know, we walk, we walk on the streets of gold, you know, so everything that everybody dies for in this world, uh, we step on in heaven. But then you have this, these pearl gates, and I imagine the size of these pearls because uh, the walls of that city are described as being 256 feet in height, and you have 12 gates to that city. Uh, the gates are always open, but you have these pearls that could be put in place to close it if you needed. What kind of pearl you had there? As a kid, I always thought this, what kind of clam? came up with that pearl. Uh, you know, what was the size of that? Uh, we know that God can create a pearl in an instant uh, and do that. But uh, even the, the gates of the city uh, of uh, heaven are pearls. So this is something in that culture valuable. You didn't have these things uh, running around uh, in the frequency that we have today. So these two men, okay, here's the, the story. You have the great treasure, the pearl, you have that paragraph right after it. The men's response to these finds are the same. They sell all, and uh, they do this in order to obtain these precious items. So what do you do with a parable or two parables like this? You have this interpretation down at the bottom that is really an explanation of this. Some people are not looking for the good news of a savior and king, but come across that message and give up their confidence in anything else and puts their faith in that message. The message is truly a person. I mean, this is the man who is in the field, accidentally finds this, and he sells everything. 
Uh, he is like the person that maybe you can think of, and maybe you were like this. You were a person who didn't care about God, didn't care about anything religious, and uh, you were, as it is, indifferent. You don't care. And suddenly you hear the message of Jesus Christ, and uh, you hear what he has done and what he gives, and uh, you understood that message, and all of a sudden you're going, I need that. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that's different than some other people, because with the story of the pearl, you could put it this way, others are seeking after God, and come across the message of the Savior and King and give up everything and put their faith in that message. There are some people who spend their whole life seeking after God. They're trying to find Him. They're reaching after Him, as Acts chapter 17 describes it. Uh, They're reaching out, perhaps, that they can find Him, and they spend their life going from religion to religion to religion, and then they finally are confronted with the truths of uh, the Scripture, who Jesus Christ is, what He's done, uh, and they are confronted with this, the fact that there's no longer this... uh, Excuse me. There's not a work salvation, because you realize all religions are like that some kind of works that you have to do in order to earn your salvation. You come to Christianity and you're going, this one's completely different than all the rest. The work's already been done on the cross. It was finished. Um, And uh, you come across that and this person goes, that's completely different. And it makes sense when they come to accept it and they believe it. Now, this is not saying, okay, there are some that looked at this, these two parables and said this, that you have individuals here that are working and gaining this stuff. You know, they're selling everything. They're, they're working to gain this very item. And you're going, no, this is not a promoting a work salvation, but it is promoting something that Jesus was declaring to his disciples on a regular basis. Remember his calls for discipleship? He says, if you want to be my disciple, here's what happens. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You go, what is denying yourself? Well, everything you've had before, the works that you've done, the life that you lived, you're going, this isn't worth it, it's not working, it's not pleasing to God, I'm going to take up my cross. Okay, you go, what does this mean? I'm taking up my cross. No, you're not taking up, uh, you know, a burden in life. But the fact is, is that you going to follow Christ, you are going to follow a cross kind of life and follow me. See, there is a cost in following Jesus Christ. If you wanted to be Christ's disciples, it's not just merely, okay, everything's okay. No, there, there is an element that you lose a lot of things in this life to have this one thing, but it's worth it. You have the hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than what? Worldwide fame, riches untold. You have all these different lines in that, but that's the truth. I would rather have this single thing Jesus Christ and the gospel, everything that goes along with that, I'd rather have that than everything else in the world. It's really a call to discipleship that he's going to challenge uh, individuals this way that you would give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. 
because he's got a lot of people that are following him and they're just kind of, you know, well, we'll go see Jesus do a miracle today. You know, maybe he'll feed us today. And these type of things. You have people that are following Jesus on the basis of that and Jesus is going, no, no, no. When it comes to this message of the kingdom and you hear this, you're wanting that only. And you grab onto it. So really the difference between the two is just simply this. Person looking, person not looking, they come across the, the message of Jesus Christ, they give up everything for that and put their faith in it. That brings us to the other parable that is by itself, but it's not really by itself, and we'll tell you why here in a second, because it seems to have a connection with another one. But we call this the parable of the dragnet. Dragnet was something commonly used by the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, what Jesus is using is an illustration that they would have been familiar with. When we talk about the Sea of Galilee, we're not talking about a sea. Okay? You go, what do you mean? You can see across it, okay? We uh, were on the eastern side, and we looked back when we were on the eastern side, and we could see where our hotel was at on the western side, even though it's about 10 miles away. You can see across this lake. Uh, This is why people could follow Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, because they could see where he was going in the boat. But that northern edge of the Sea of Galilee is a major fishing region. When we were there, they said they figured out why the fish tend to be in the northern part rather than in the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's because they've got some hot springs that are underneath the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. The whole region is volcanic. Uh, you have to realize that this is a rift that goes uh, from north to south and you get further south it becomes what we know as the Dead Sea which is the lowest point on the earth it's a volcanic region all the rocks there are balsic balsic rocks did I get that right? igneous rocks yeah Um, and uh, igneous rocks Uh, but they're volcanic rocks and uh, you have uh, the, the whole region being that way but the fish like the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where you have all these fishing villages that would have been there. And one of the things that they traditionally use, they would use a hook. I mean, we have Peter using a hook going out and catching a fish. We know that. Uh, And sometimes they would use a net. They would cast it in and it would go down and you'd kind of grab a string and pull it up. This is a different kind because it's a drag net in the sense that it was a very lengthy net One edge had uh, what we would say floaties on it of some kind, a thing that kept it on the surface, and the bottom edge had weights. And the weights would go down to the bottom or close to it uh, of where the, the water was at, and you'd stretch this thing out. And typically what you would do is you would get two boats to help out with this, though you could have individuals doing this from a long distance, be close to the shore, drop this thing in, and then walk it up towards the shore. But typically you had boats doing this, and what the dragnet would do is that it would just simply go along and like a huge, wide, you know, (laughs) vacuum cleaner, take everything up that was in the water there. And you'd bring this thing together, and you would pull it out of the water, and you would have a catch of fish in a certain area of the lake. You have, um, yeah, you have a blank there, probably someone are asking, the top of the net floated in the surface while weights pulled down the bottom edge of this in there. A catch of fish like this would be a mixture of good, healthy fish and unhealthy or inedible fish. <laughs> I typed in, you know, 
in a unhealthy and unedible fish, and then of course you get the grammatical spelling. There's no such thing as unedible. I'm like, yeah, there is. Wait, no, it's inedible. Okay, uh, it's inedible. That's a word. In Jewish culture, remember this, there are certain fish they can't eat. Leviticus chapter 11, you get all these laws about what they can eat. There are certain fish they can't eat. They can't eat fish without scales or fins. If they don't have fins, you can't eat them. Uh, and you go, what does that eliminate? Things like eels, that type of thing. Um, you know, they couldn't have, for some of you, this would be devastating, shrimp, lobster, that type of thing. Uh, but it, you could catch this. I mean, think about this. Uh, did they have a fish like catfish over there? Yeah, they had those uh, uh, bottom feeding, you know, things that clean out uh, but aren't very, you know, healthy meat and that type of thing, uh, catfish, and some others. And so you would have this net go out. It would catch some good fish. It would catch bad fish because all it did is come along and sweep everything up. And what they would typically do is that uh, they wouldn't throw back in the bad fish because it's like, why waste time with this? Because these fish are going to do nothing. Uh, they would cast them aside. In this case, they're actually casting the bad fish into the fire taking the good fish and storing them to either be smoked or um, dried out uh, and eaten fresh. Now, you say, what's the interpretation of this? This parable is, has, many, has many similarities to the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what many people view this parable as is kind of a bookend to what you have at the beginning. When you think about these parables, the 13 parables that we have, we have the first one that's basically saying, okay, the message of the kingdom's going out, it lands on different soils. And people will respond. But then you have this next parable that is talking about the fact that, yes, when that goes out, there are individuals who look like the wheat, but are tares. They've been sown by the devil himself uh, in the midst of that field in the kingdom of this world. You get to this last one, you have this theme come up again. It's kind of these two bookends with stuff in between them. But you have uh, this parable, it's about the harvest at the end of the age. You're going to get to a point where you get to the end of the kingdom, the message of the gospel goes out, uh, but it's going to come a time where you're going to have an accounting. You say, who's going to do the harvesting? Just like the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, this one has the angels. The Lord gives the explanation. The angels are the one who separate the good and the bad. The wicked are sent to a place of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you have this, it's the end of the age, and the other story, it was just simply noting the fact that you don't want to pull up certain people out of the world thinking they're not a part of the kingdom because they don't believe in God and they are a part of the kingdom uh, because you'll do damage. But when you come to that point where you have this end of the age and you're talking about what is the end of the age, it's the time just before the kingdom because then you have the kingdom age, the age we live in right now, uh, you're going to have a separation of those that are followers of God. Uh, they are going to go directly into the kingdom and enjoy that kingdom physically uh, and be a part of that, uh, whereas the rest of the nations that denied God and survived all the tribulation events are going to be separated out, cast into the lake, or not the lake of fire, into hell. Eventually, after the great white throne judgment, go to the lake of fire. 
The one added thing that some see in this parable is the fact that there's a net that's cast out. And it's a broad net that's going out, sort of like what you had in the very first parable where you have people who are broadcasting, casting abroad the seed wherever they're at. And some see a hint in this that Jesus earlier on in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, had told his disciples to be fishers, or that they were going to be fishers of men. And what are they going to do with this message of the kingdom? They're not just going to go to the nation of Israel, though initially they're told to go there. But after Jesus Christ dies, it's now you go into the world and teach all nations. You get them saved, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then teach them to observe whatsoever I commanded you. Uh, but there does seem to possibly be this idea that here you have the casting out of the message of the gospel. It's broad, it's vast. But in the midst of that, you're going to have individuals caught up in this that are going to be caught up in the message of the gospel, but they're not worthy of the kingdom. You know, why is that? Because they don't accept the message. They don't want it. This, this serves as a warning. It's at the end here. It's a warning parable. I thought about this. There's a lot of people that come and hear this message of the kingdom, and they're excited about it, but they're not excited about the Savior. They're excited about the benefits that they'll get, but they're not excited about the message, the person of the kingdom. Jesus Christ. And I've thought about this. Here you've got an individual, as Jesus is telling these parables to them, he's got one individual in this pack that he already knows, heard the message of the kingdom. He hears it over and over again. He hears it illustrated many different ways. He sees the person, has an opportunity to talk to this person who is the center of the message of this kingdom. And he's going to end up hanging himself, denying Christ, and betraying him. And initially, he looks like somebody who's a part of the group. He's caught up in the message of the kingdom. Uh, he's a trustworthy individual. Judas Iscariot was the, we talk about people hiding stuff in the ground, you know, because they don't have banks, so they hide stuff in the ground to keep their money safe. Well, what did the disciples do? The disciples put their money in the hands of Judas Iscariot. You know why? Because he's trustworthy from all appearances. But yet you find out that he's really not a follower of Jesus Christ. He's around it. And you would never have been able to identify it. Even at the Last Supper, people are going, the Lord says, one's going to deny me. And there's people at the table going, is it I? Is it me? You talking about me? They aren't going, you know, given, given the side glance over to Judas and going, you know, their friends when they hear the statement. No, they, they don't know. Um, but yet the Lord gives warning. There are people who are going to be caught up in the message of the kingdom and whatever, and, and they're not going to be a part of it. They're going to be cast out. So it's a, the last parable is a warning parable. And really a challenge, are you one who is going to accept and be the good ones that have accepted the messenger, the message and the messenger of the kingdom, which is Jesus Christ? So the conclusion comes. Verses 51, 52, the Lord gets all done speaking. 
And it is sadly humorous uh, when you, you read this that Jesus gets done, verse 51, and he says unto him, have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, yes, Lord. And I put in the notes there, they say yes, which probably me, or which is probably not true at the time. Ever been in the environment where you go, anyone have any, you know, the teacher environment, uh, you have any questions? You know, do you really want to raise your hand and assume ignorance? You rarely have that in a classroom, that you have a student that's bold enough to claim ignorance. You know, no, I don't understand, and everyone else is going, you know, you don't want to do that. So I think as a group, they're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, we understand it. And they kind of nod and they say, yes, Lord, we, we have this. Uh, we've understood it. But they probably didn't until many of these items until after Jesus rose from the dead that these things become clear to them. I mean, they I mean, th- think in contrast to this, the Lord three times takes his disciples aside and says, I'm going to die, go to Jerusalem, be beaten up, tried. Uh, both the Jews and the Romans are going to uh, take me in and uh, they're going to eventually crucify me. I'm going to rise the third day. And even in the midst of it, the disciples are going, what's going on? I don't know. He rose from the dead. What's that? They, they, they would acknowledge in the classroom that they know, but they really don't know. But the Lord says something to them in challenge. Because these are the first people who have close contact and are the ones being taught directly by the Lord at all times. Jesus tells them, then tells them, as ones who have been taught the things of the kingdom, that they should share these things both old and new. He says, you've been taught in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's what it's stating there. Uh, verse 52, therefore, every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that's a householder who brings forth his treasures both old and new. Um, He's saying, you've been instructed. Like the scribes, you have a knowledge that other people don't have. When you go through the the New Testament and you see uh, the term either scribes or lawyers, it's referring to people who had encyclopedic knowledge of the traditions and the laws of the Jews, the religious laws. It's not that they're lawyers in a courtroom setting, settling disputes and suing people and whatever. No, these are individuals that understood Jewish law. And so people could come to them and go, do you have any advice on this subject? Do you have any knowledge on this subject? How about this morning? Any of you ever seen Fiddle on a Roof? They go to the scribe and they ask him, is there any prayer for the czar? You know, may, may, may God keep him far from us. You know, that, that's the, 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 the promise there. Well, that's what happens with the scribes. People would come to them and go, what's the answers here? We don't understand. What Jesus is saying to these men is, you've had instruction, and what happens is this. If you understand the things of the kingdom of heaven, what you're going to do is share this with others. And you're going to, out of the abundance of your storehouse of what you've been able to receive, what you're going to do is bring forth both old and new. And what I have there in that blank, what this is probably a reference to from the Lord, is that it's a reference to the Old Testament. Okay? How much information on the kingdom do we have in the Old Testament? 
Most of the prophecies are talking about the kingdom. The covenants and, uh, are pointing forward to this kingdom that's coming. The whole Old Testament is filled with stuff about this kingdom that Jesus is going to set up someday on earth for a thousand years. Uh, so there's abundance in the Old Testament, but here you have Jesus telling them new things. Remember, this whole section here is the mysteries of the kingdom, things that haven't been revealed before in the Old Testament. Now it's being revealed here. So here's this new stuff that the disciples are supposed to do uh, and share with other people. So he's just basically saying, okay, you've claimed knowledge. You've sat here and heard all seven of these. And I say, some say eight because they count this parable or this householder statement as another parable because it says those of you that are instructed in the kingdom of heaven, even though it says it's like the kingdom of heaven, but I go with seven. Um, this is just a very quick illustration, uh, not necessarily in the parable category. But uh, these men should be able to instruct others. And you know what? You've gone through this and you kind of go, it's a little difficult to understand this. Well, you've had training, a little bit of training in this. And so you can better kind of understand what these parables mean. And you know, I would go, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, you've got a storehouse of knowledge that other people don't have. So share it, use it. And uh, that was the challenge at the end of this, not just merely to sit on uh, the things that they'd heard and never share it, but that you claim you understand it. Okay, that means you go teach, you go share. So it's kind of a concluding statement there for the Lord at the end of the parables to say, okay, teaching time's over. Let's go to other things going on uh, for this time. A lot of information there. Any questions? In the back. No, he's just, he's just saying, hey, let me give you another thing. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is like this. He's just, it's, it's not that there's anything just incredible about that. It's just saying, hey, let's go keep going, and, and the kingdom of heaven is like this. And it's a different way of saying and. Yeah, no, he's gotten to a point where he's just kind of going, it's like this, and it's like this, and again, it's like this, and, and he's just kind of bringing that along. So, Steve? Okay, uh, they come across the first blank that's in that interpretation section on the first page. Uh, they come across the message and give up their confidence in anything else and put their faith in that message. So you say what their confidence is. Their confidence is in everything else around them, everything they've had before. And they're just kind of going, I give all that up, whatever it is, and go and buy this. The second blank is the word faith. So... The first one is that you have the person, um, well, the, the first line is the very, the, the very first statement. Some people are not looking. And then the second sentence is others are seeking. So in life, there are people who are not looking for God, the kingdom, whatever, stumble across it. Second one is there are people that are out looking. There are people who are religious and trying to find God and they're spending their life doing this, but they're not finding him. Others, it says some people are not looking. You're not drawing that from the parable. You're drawing that from life. I'm drawing that from the story. The guy's not looking for a treasure in the field. He's not looking for that treasure. He's just going through life. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not going around with a, he's not one of the nerdy people with a metal detector going around everywhere going, okay, I'm going to find treasure, whatever. He's just going through life and all of a sudden he stumbles across this great treasure. So, and there are people like this in life that are just going through life. They're indifferent to the things of God, could care less, and yeah. And then suddenly it's there. You're on the right track. You're you're where you need to be at. But yeah, you're you're you know, you're close. And uh, you may be closer than you realize it. So there's there's people. Like, I mean, if I was to ask testimony people in the room, there's some in here this room that had no care for God, none, zero, and then they were confronted with the gospel, and they were just kind of like, whoa. Now they may not accept it immediately, but they're kind of mulling it over and going, is it really worth it to accept this? It's life-changing for them. It's shattering their paradigms and their thought process to that point and going, I need this. Whereas others are going, I'm looking for something because I know there's a void. And uh, they're looking religious circles and that type of thing. And that's really what the second parable of the pearl is. And the man's looking for valuable stuff everywhere and uh, comes across the one that's the greatest thing out of all of them, which is the message of the kingdom. Yes. The last bank on the first page is uh, faith. Are you first page or the last page? Uh, second page, Old Testament. The Old Testament, yeah. This could be a reference to the Old Testament and the new things that Jesus was telling his disciples. You're going to share the Old Testament and the new things I'm sharing with you. So, 